to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming king of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Excited for our summer linkers to be here. Exciting news about our residents. The Lord's doing a lot at TCC, and we're excited to be a part of that. <clears throat> Have you ever anticipated a significant event in your life, maybe for an extended period of time, and when the event actually takes place or finally comes to fruition, although you may have some people with you or they may have been kind of watching and waiting for that event along the way, when it actually happens, they don't, they don't fully grasp the significance of what just went down. And so in your mind, and maybe you keep it to yourself or maybe you don't, I don't know, uh, but their response is a bit less than what you think is appropriate. A C- couple examples. Uh, maybe you, there's some movie buffs or big readers in this room um, and, and when the day finally came for that long-awaited movie or the release of the new book series, uh, most of your closest friends seemed pretty laissez-faire about it. I mean, they went to the movie with you maybe, it was a fun night, you know, spent some dumb money on popcorn that's three times the cost at the movie theater, and it was, it was fun, but there had no appreciation for the intricate character development or the emotional strength of the film or the skillful cinematography all throughout. It, really, everything that riveted you, you're like... What's up, you know, on with life? Or, or maybe maybe it was that first half or full marathon you ran or first few miles, or in my case, like mile. Um, and man, you've been working on that for months and months and months. And maybe your friends are runners, and so you're like, yeah, I know you run a lot more than me. That's cool. Um, but they're excited for you, and so you've been working and working and working, and you get to that day, and you do it. You get it done. Someone told me this week, I won't embarrass them, they did a Murph if you do CrossFit, that's a big deal. You're done. So, so that you may exclaim, ah, I finished, or I did the Murph. And your friends may no doubt be proud of you. Ah, great job. But it's quickly drowned out or clouded out by the next thing in life. And life continues. You ever experienced that? Of course. So here in Mark chapter 11, we're going to see something similar here. Uh, although the magnitude of the situation that's happening in the life of Christ is much more significant than your movie or book. Don't throw anything at me. Or, or even the half marathon that you worked really hard for. Uh, it, it almost seems in some aspects that, that the significance in the way of the event was, was missed. In fact, we'll talk about this, but it's called the triumphal entry that we normally talk about here. This account is not very triumphal, honestly. And, and I think there's a reason for that. Uh, So in the context of the study of our book through Mark, we've been walking through this for a while now, um, 
we've, we've actually had a few significantly weighty moments that Pastor Michael has walked us through that have been uh, overlooked or perhaps missed. And you may see them on the screen. Mark chapter 8, 31 through 33, we saw this a few weeks ago. Jesus tells, and this is the first time he tells of his coming death. Uh, and what does Peter do? Peter rebukes Jesus, which sounds crazy to us readers, right? Uh, how many years later? But he rebukes Jesus. Why? And, and the scripture tells us why. Peter rebukes Christ. He rebukes him because his mind was not on the things of God. In fact, here's Jesus telling about his death, and Peter is like, no. Jesus says, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to raise again. Yet Peter's mind was likely clouded with fear and confusion and anxiety. Can we not relate to that? And all of a sudden, the significance of Jesus' words, they came and they went. And the story continues. Look at Mark chapter 9, 30 through 32. Here again in chapter 9, it's the second time Jesus tells of what's called the passion or of his death. And the disciples didn't understand it. And instead of asking, uh, which I never do, and I don't understand, I always admit it and I always ask for help. Uh, but the disciples were fearful. They, they feared and they asked. Uh, they didn't ask for help. And what did they do? They begin arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So let me get this straight. Jesus is telling about the most significant event in all of the history of the world, that he's going to be killed and buried and resurrected, and the disciples are arguing about who's going to be number one. The significance of the event is just whisked away. Mark chapter 10, Pastor Michael walked us through this a couple weeks ago. Here, for the third time, Jesus tells the disciples of his death. And what do they do? They approach Jesus, two of them at least, and they request to sit at his right and his left hand in heaven. Jesus is once again telling about the most significant event in history, and they're not even worried about it. We haven't gotten to Mark chapter 14 yet, but when you get to the garden, here it is, the night before Jesus is betrayed by Judas and taken into captivity and walked through the entire crucifixion narrative. He asks his three closest disciples. It's like, okay, three, three of my closest, come with me and pray. Just stay awake and pray. That's all I ask you to do. And what happens? Throughout the night, three times, Jesus comes back and finds them asleep. And, you know, often, I've often thought about this. I had a friend say this to me more than uh, almost 20 years ago. Can you imagine Jesus' thoughts? <laughs> Which, praise God, he's the Lord, and he's patient, and he's sinless. But, but it's like, wake up. <laughs> Do you understand the magnitude of what is going on? And the answer to that is no. In some sense, the Lord has not fully revealed his plan, but in some sense, it's just the sinfulness of man. And now, look, here's the deal. I, I don't share this with you because I want you to look at the disciples and be like, God, what idiots. Like, you know, what, what I want you to recognize in all of us, at least one of the things I want us to take away from today is we're, we're the exact same way. We're the exact same way. The significance of what is coming when Christ returns and what he has already accomplished on our behalf and even the small things that we take for granted every day of our life is often so clouded out by such less significant and weighty matters. This morning we're going to see how the significance of who Jesus is as he comes into the city of David, into Jerusalem, can absolutely draw external fanfare but be internally missed by so many. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, Father, that you give us hearts and minds and souls 
that have great depth and understanding of the significance of the moment that we will be studying this morning together. And Lord, I pray that you would give us deep understanding of how that applies to us today. And Lord, I ask that you do this not for our own benefit solely, but Lord, so that we may know you more and that we may love you more and that we may make your name more known and your glory more known in and through our lives. And I ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So here we are in Mark chapter 11. And this is actually right before Jesus makes his entrance into the city. As I mentioned a minute ago, oftentimes we call this the triumphal entry. It is not uh, Easter time, unfortunately. That's uh, in my house a very uh, popular holiday. We really enjoy celebrating Easter. Um, And so at the beginning of chapter 11, this is actually the beginning of the last third of the sections in the book of Mark. So typically commentators break it up into three sections. This is the beginning of the last third. And the entire last section from Mark chapter 11, verses 1, all the way to the end of the book is completely focused on what most would say the last seven days of Jesus' life. So all of the next portion of this scripture is hyper-focused until the end of the gospel of Mark, hyper-focused and all attention attention is given to the promise of redemption through Jesus Christ. It begins with his entrance into the city and it is culminated in his death his burial, and his resurrection, and then his ascension. And and remember, during this time of the year, this is the Passover. So at this point in Jerusalem, there would be two to three times more people than there normally is in the city, right? Because they're all there, they're pilgrimaging in, coming in to celebrate the Passover, to do the whole deal. And, And this would, from our perspective, and for all Christians for eternity, would be a Passover that would be remembered for all eternity. Because Jesus would become our true Passover lamb. And through his sacrifice in our place, he would accomplish all that needed to be accomplished. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. You know, I love R.C. Sproul's connections here. Um, if you don't know R.C. Sproul, he's passed now, but has preached for a long, long time. Uh, been a faithful pastor. He actually connects this passage with the advent of Christ. If you don't know what the advent of Christ is, That is, okay, I'll tell you what it is. It's literally just the arrival of the baby Jesus, right? Jesus has come into the world, so Jesus has been born, and here he is, and he's in this baby manger. Just kidding, he's actually in a humble manger, so he comes as a humble servant, and he enters into the world. And and why did he come? He he came to be king. He he came for a specific moment. And here's what what R.C. Sproul connects. He says, After 30-plus years, we we know that the baby has come into the world to be our king. After 30-plus years on earth, here we have the king, the advent of the king into the royal city of David. He returns to Jerusalem officially for the last time before he dies. And, And the gears begin to turn. The connection here to me is extremely beautiful. We uh, did our 24-hour stay with Winnie this weekend, and so I was up most night, Friday night with Amy. It was actually a little bit sweeter of a time Friday night than I anticipated. I was telling Emily this morning, it was really quiet. Amy got about seven seconds of sleep, and Winnie was asleep, but nobody was bothering us, and the room was dark, and it was like a quiet library. And I was just, I was just pondering this thought, like, like we can quickly breeze through the gospel and the story of Jesus coming in and doing his whole thing. And I'm not saying it doesn't mean things to us, but as I sat there at roughly 3.30, 3.45 in the morning, and I just pondered this idea that, that here is a beautiful picture of Jesus coming into the city for the last time, and he is hyper-focused on what he's come to do. 
And we're going to see that this morning. Look, look at verse 1 again. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So drawing near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany in the Mount of Olives. Those are important places. We're not going to talk through all of it. We could spend hours on it. But, but just think of it like this. Jesus was walking, and on the way from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, he would come upon these places. So I want you to, to picture this. If you don't know anything about um, the landscape over where uh, this all took place, um, the Mount of Olives on the southeastern slope is the city of Bethany. And in fact, to this day, you can go stay in Bethany, get a hotel room. And, and the, it, apparently it's pretty beautiful because from, from the city of Bethany on that slope of the mountain, you can overlook Jerusalem and the Kidron Valley. It's really pretty. And so Jesus comes from the Mount of Olives into the city of David uh, and it's pretty significant. There, there's, a, in fact, a lot of significance around Bethany in the Mount of Olives. I'll list out a few. Bethany is probably most known because it's my youth pastor's daughter's name from a child. I'm just kidding. Um, I thought about that this morning. Uh, but Bethany is probably best known for being the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Bethany was the place where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Bethany was the home of Simon the leper. Bethany was the place where Mary anointed Jesus' feet with the perfume. It's also significant as it's the place near where Christ actually ascended back to heaven after his resurrection. And he gathered his disciples here at Bethany. He blessed them. But I want to take us back to Ezekiel. Um, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you'd like. Ezekiel chapter 10 and then some into 11. But here, this is the description of when Jerusalem fell. In 586 B.C. So Jerusalem falls, and Ezekiel is given a prophetic vision from God, and he could see Jerusalem, and he could see the temple, and here's what he sees. He sees the glory of God leaving the temple in Ezekiel 10. And where does the glory of God go? It goes to the Mount of Olives. Now, there's a lot to that vision, but I want you to hold that in your mind because we're going to come back to it. But the glory of God at that point departed the temple in the city of David and has not returned. So, look at verses 1 through 3. I'm just going to read it again. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So, first as you read this, it's a little interesting to me that Jesus had knowledge of the colt. In fact, a lot of scholars debate why he would have had knowledge of the cult. Some say that Jesus was familiar with the area and had visited it before and kind of prearranged this. Some would actually say he may have owned the cult, you know, in his previous, you know, kind of coming to the area. Maybe he bought it in preparation. Um, others would point to the omniscience of Jesus. James Brooke, who uh, is a, a well-known commentator, says that Mark likely saw this as an event opportunity to show the supernatural knowledge and power of Jesus. I err on that side. I, I think Jesus had, and we know Jesus was omniscient, he was God, but I think Jesus was showing little by little who he actually was. He knew exactly where that cult was going to be, and he knew exactly what was going to transpire. And so he sends them, uh, and then verse 2 it says, the, the, the animal that he requests was a mighty steed. No, that's not what it says at all, actually. It says a cult, and we don't, we don't understand just from Mark that it was the cult of a donkey. If you were to look at Matthew's account, Matthew 21, verse 2, 
Matthew mentions a donkey, so a colt can actually be, for all of you non-farmers, uh, it could be the young of a bunch of different animals. But in this context, it seems most plausible that he asked for the colt of a donkey. So why the colt of a donkey? And, and Michael's mentioned some of this at some point throughout this study, but he, he's the king. Like, why, why would a king, and furthermore, the king of all kings, only request a donkey? Why not, why not a, a horse or a chariot? But here's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God of all creation. He asks for a humble donkey. I think, I think there's a couple reasons for this. One, I think it's a glimpse of his humility, right? Je- Jesus is, is portrayed in the book of Isaiah as the suffering servant, the humble king. And so we, we continue to see that. There's never really a moment in Jesus' life where he is not humble. And so we see that even in his choice of how he approaches the city. But I don't think that's the only significance. Listen to Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So our Lord's arrival into the city of David on a donkey is a fulfillment of prophecy. And so what I'm going to do, if you haven't already determined that at this point, is I'm going to do my best to show you as many of prophetic fulfillments that we see as we walk through the last section of Mark, the book of Mark. And and so we see a fulfillment of prophecy, and as we read this account, we're watching Jesus begin to fulfill all things that were promised in the Old Testament as he ultimately traverses the road to Golgotha. And we know, we know the ending, right? We read from our perspective. We know what will happen, and we know what is to come. And so then he asks for the colt to have never been ridden. Why? Why does that matter? I'm glad you asked. A colt, a colt that's never been ridden is a colt that is prepared for a king, that is set aside for sacred purposes. Listen to Numbers chapter 19, and this is around the laws of purification. If you ever ever want some incredible invigorating reading for your children at nighttime read numbers chapter 19 so in verses 1 and 2 this is the laws of purification and it says this now the lord spoke to moses and to aaron saying this is the statute of the law that the lord has commanded tell the people of israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come first samuel 6 7 through 8 now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark, this is the ark of the covenant, take the ark of the Lord and place it on the court, on the cart. And so why do I mention this? The ark of the covenant, this is where the glory of God exists. When the temple is destroyed, they're literally building a tabernacle, a tent, if you will, a portable temple as they move throughout Everywhere the Lord has them to go, and the Ark of the Covenant they carry, and it's a big special thing, and we don't have the time to dig into that. But, but in this passage, it's being asked that what is used to put the Ark on is, is unyoked, is without blemish, is for sacred purpose. And there's symbolic messianic significance here. Don't miss it. In the words of Danny Aiken, he says, As the Ark of the Covenant needed an unyoked carrier, 
So the true ark of the covenant, the glory of God in full body, which is Jesus. The Lord Jesus required an unridden animal for his sacred assignment. Once again, we are beginning to see Jesus unfold the fulfillment of prophecy as he is as he's in step with the requirement of a clean cult for sacred use. We continue. Jesus says, if anyone questions you, punch him in the face. <clears throat> Just trying to make sure you're listening. Don't get lost in these Old Testament, okay? Jesus says, if anyone questions you, tell them that the Lord has need of it. In his commentary on Mark, Mark Strauss is his name, points out that this is Jesus' first public declaration of he himself being Lord. So he's referenced the word Lord up until this point, but this is the first real time that Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm Lord. Okay, So this is his first public declaration of that and that, he's, that he is indeed the Messiah. And so once again, you get into this, and as an aside, uh, there's a lot of debate, if you will, around what the word Lord means here. And some among scholars would say that Lord means sir, or it means master, or it means owner, or it actually means Lord. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you what I think it means. Uh, I think it means in this context that Mark uses the Greek word kyrios to reveal the identity of Jesus more clearly. I think when he says Lord, it means Lord. I think he said, go tell these people that the Lord, the promised Messiah, needs this cult. And they're going to give it to you because I'm, not, I'm omniscient and I'm all-powerful and I'm the Lord that has been promised. And so go get the cult. The people ask what they're doing and what is their response. They do exactly what Jesus has said. They didn't steer away from obedience. And that is not the main point of this. But I would say to you, church, if you feel like the Lord has revealed something to you through the study of your word, through the study of his word and through your prayer time, don't, don't not do it. Don't not do it. Or don't do it halfway. If the Spirit of God impresses upon your heart to speak to someone about something that you feel like is important, maybe you see something in their life, or maybe, maybe the Lord has impressed upon your heart to step up and serve in a certain way in the church, but you're, you're tempted not to do it because you're busy or the summer is here, don't, don't halfway obey. Don't halfway approach Emily and say, you know, I might like to think about potentially, you know, serving this summer in VBS. Do it. Even something down as simple as their response for the cult. They followed his directions specifically. Look at verse 7. It says this, And they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. There's a couple things I'll point out here. Garments on the cult. Honestly, this would have just been provided to, to cushion Jesus's sit, sitting there, his rump, right? So he's riding on a colt. They're not super comfortable. If you ride, if you've ever ridden a horse, I mean, you know, you kind of have to get used to it. I imagine it's a lot like the Peloton in my house that I don't ride much and should more. Uh, it's not super comfortable if you ride bikes in any kind of capacity. And so they, they put this blanket on the donkey in order to keep them comfortable. But it's to show honor, right? It's to honor him, provide cushion for him. And some would even say throughout the commentaries that it would have been maybe colorful to show some kind of festive character. So regardless, the disciples sought to honor Jesus. They were doing this out of a desire to make him be known. 
And then many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches. Mark says leafy branches. Other accounts say palm branches, so that's why we say Palm Sunday prior to Easter. So this was likely uh, a bunch of palm branches and then their clothes being laid down on the road. And and so um, as Jesus rides into the city, garments and palm branches are laid on the ground. And if you look historically, this really means uh, or or is somewhat of a sign of victory and, and of triumph. Maybe the arrival of a king or the arrival of a prophet. So don't mistake all of this exterior action to necessarily be because they know and believe that Jesus is who he is. We're not there yet, so hold that thought. Now, I want to take a quick step back and and consider my uh, initial comments around missing the significance of certain events in our life and or in Scripture. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the, the section is typically referenced as the triumphal entry, but Mark's account is hardly triumphal at all. If you go look at Matthew and John, it's a big deal. A lot's going on, and there's a lot more detail. And, you know, in Mark fashion, I had a professor once say Mark is often like a movie script, right? He's kind of quick and to the point. It's a little shorter. And so, you know, if someone's telling me they want to study through the Gospels for the first time, I typically would say start with Mark because you can get through it a lot faster. And not that the intention is to get through faster, but I am cognizant that our world right now has a very, very short attention span. So if you want to get through the book of Mark, you can do it. I promise you, right? And so Mark's pretty typically faster anyways, but I think it's important. I I think it's important to see that Mark doesn't include all the details because I think it's purposeful. James Edwards, in his commentary, says Mark here, by not giving the details, is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Your enthusiasm is not necessarily faith in Christ. And his popularity in front of these people that are laying all these things out of the ground does not absolutely, and in every case, equal true discipleship. He says Jesus is not confessed in pomp and circumstance, but only at the cross. He continues, and he says, The acclamations of verse 9 through 10 were thus probably less specific then later readers, us, have tended to understand them. They could have been intended as a greeting for a pilgrim just as much as they could have been as a messianic acclamation. What are you saying, Chris? I'm confused. I don't know what you mean. Here's what I mean. Remember, it's the Passover. People come into the city for the Passover. And there are certain customary traditions and things that are said. And so just because they were claiming what we'll walk through in just a minute as Jesus rode into the city does not mean that they knew and or believed that that was absolutely the Messiah. Their mere proclamation of the words did not automatically equal faith. They could have assumed it was a prophet. They could have assumed it was a one-on pilgrim. They could have done it 50 other times earlier in the day as pilgrims came into the city. And I think this is worth thinking a bit more deeply about. I think many present that day were likely the same people that were scoffing at Jesus at the cross. As he entered the city, they could have been simply doing the customary and expected response. They they could have been playing their part. Edwards actually continues, and I didn't write it all out, but he says that their response to this incredible messianic symbol was either short-lived in the minds of the crowd or missed altogether. 
Exterior response to Jesus alone is not sufficient and will not last. Did you hear what I said? Exterior response to Jesus alone is not sufficient and will not last. Many of us were once there. Those of us that that have a relationship with Christ today, we we were once there, right? The scriptures are clear that we we were all sinners prior to the Lord doing work on our behalf, and we're all in need of a Savior. And if left to ourselves, we we would, we wouldn't could, we would choose the path of sin resulting in judgment. Yet God, on our behalf, saved us. So for those of us that have a relationship with Christ today, we were there. Maybe you were raised in church and you were doing all the right things and attending all the right things and saying all the right things, but there was no true heart change. Some of us here today are still there. Maybe you're playing the part. Maybe you're trying to figure it out. Maybe you just started recently visiting church. Maybe you've really kind of had a faith crisis in your life and you've recognized, oh my gosh, I was raised in all of this, but I don't quite get it. I don't, I'm not sure I believe all of this. Maybe you're pretending. Michael said it very clear this morning. We are a church that does not have it all together. We come together, a broken people, and we boast only in the cross. And that's where salvation starts. And so some of you here are in that place. You, you don't have a relationship with Christ. And I'm, I'm here to say the invitation is open. You know, some of us as believers, oftentimes on a more practical level, day by day, we find ourselves there, right? You could walk out of this building today and hopefully your hearts are incredibly encouraged in the Lord because of God's word. But you can get to that parking lot and all of a sudden, whatever happens with your kid or your family or the phone car, what you've got to go do or what happens Monday. And it's as if you were never here. Moment by moment, we are tempted to live life on our own and miss the significance of what God is doing in our life or desires to do in our life. Look at verse 9 and 10. It says this, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, most of this is part of what's called the Hallel Psalms, which is actually Psalm 113 through 118. So you can go to Psalm 113 through 118 and kind of compare and see it. And typically each year as pilgrims come into Jerusalem for the Passover, these Psalms would be quoted and exclaimed, which is exactly why I said a minute ago, just because they're saying these things doesn't mean they believed it. They could have been just doing it out of habit and tradition. So some saw the arrival of this potential king as a chance for political reinstitution. We've we've talked through this. The kingdom of Jerusalem is going to be reinstituted, and so they're hoping that the king, the coming of the king, is going to be this mighty warrior, and it's going to reinstitute, and the economy is going to be great, and the people are going to bow down to Israel, and the temple is going to be fully restored, and the kingdom of Israel is going to be amazing. And so they, they may actually believe this could potentially be that one, But imagine their surprise when he comes in humble on a donkey. They could be completely missing the greater significance. Here's the deal. Whether those shouting the truth of prophetic fulfillment knew the significance of it or believed it, the truth of the words remain intact. And here's that truth. Jesus is he that comes in the name of the Lord and he is establishing God's kingdom. The king has returned to the city of David. 
Blessed is the coming king of our father David. In fact, this very phrase would make the Pharisees extremely angry later on in the story when it's absolutely attributed to Jesus. Because they're, they're angry because they know what it meant. They knew that it meant that Jesus was the fulfillment of the coming Messiah and that he was the promised one to come through the line of David to restore the nation of Israel. But they didn't like that. It took away from their popularity. They didn't believe it. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, 12-16. It says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him in the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Here's the short summary of that. God is saying, I am pointing beyond David, and I am pointing beyond David's son Solomon, and I am pointing beyond all of their descendants because they're men and they will sin, and I will be gracious with them. But here's where I'm pointing to. I'm pointing to the eternal continuance of the Davidic throne forever and ever and ever. Do you see it? Jesus is coming into the city, and he is the new and better David. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies, and he is the one that is establishing the eternal throne forever and ever and ever. Verse 11 says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, and it was already late, he went out to Bethany, with the twelve. Now, this is pretty anticlimactic, right? Like I said, you can go read the other gospel accounts, and the triumphal entry is a big deal, right? But Jesus comes in, and they're like, hey, Hosanna, you know, and then all, it's almost like they just disperse, and they're gone, right? Moment moves on, right? Remember your mile, my half mile, and you were excited for me, and then you disappeared. You know, they're gone, and what does he do? He, he doesn't, like, get angry. He doesn't look around. He's not even distracted by what any of that that just went down was he goes straight to where where does he go he goes to the temple he went straight to the temple why did he go to the temple and don't don't miss this because i'm going to be honest with you I, i've been thinking and reading and praying through this all weekend i called michael earlier in the week and i was like hey man i'm thinking i maybe should go into like verse 12 into the end of the chapter but then you like get into the curse of the fig tree and then it's like whoo then we got to deal with that and then how you pray and you know, then we would like eat lunch here and come back, you know, and we would might be here till six. Like, so I don't want to do all of that. Like, we got a lot going on. I just, I, in fact, I said to him, I think uh, there's a lot here, man, or there's not a lot here, you know. But then as I started digging into it, I was like, holy smokes, there's a lot here, right? We talked about a lot already. But, but don't be tempted to see like the end. Okay, big deal. Moving on. Turn the page. Wait till, wait till the next day when he comes back. Don't, don't miss the fact, the very simple fact, it seems anticlimactic, that he goes straight to the temple. Why did he go straight to the temple? He went to the temple to survey and inspect. He went straight to the temple because that's where his focus was going to begin. The scriptures say it was late in the day. So what does that mean? Likely most had gone home, right? They, they were done, tired. I don't know, whatever they, whatever they do at nighttime. 
they, they were gone, right? But, but some commentators actually would see the word late as a dual meaning, and I kind of like that. It's not just it was late in the day, but it was, it was, it was late. It was too late for the temple because Jesus is about to regulate. Here's the temple, the place that was to be consecrated to the glory of God and to him alone and to lead people from all nations to the one true God. And what was it doing? It was doing the exact opposite. It had become like a whitewashed tomb and had been turned into a spectacle of business and a spectacle of pious, ungodly worshipers and ungodly practices that reeked of pride. A place that should have been full of humility and boasted only in Christ had become a place of money-changing, a place of legalistic exterior change with no true humble heart change. So what do you think Jesus saw when he got there? What did he see? I'll tell you what he saw. He saw where the money changers' tables would have been set up. Maybe they were still there. He saw the mess from the livestock. You ever been around livestock? I don't care how much you clean, it's still there. He would have seen in the outer court where the livestock would have been being traded and peddled during the day. Here in the place that was meant to be the house of prayer and worship, it had become this boisterous marketplace that oppressed and exploited the poor where the cause of merchants, one commentator says, would have been drowned out. They would have drowned out any sounds of prayer. In the outer court, if you know anything about the kingdom, the outer court was the only part of the temple the Jews would let the Gentiles in. The outer court had become a spectacle. And so it allowed no access for the Gentiles to worship the Lord. Here's the deal, church. Jesus was not taken aback by the grandeur of the Passover celebration that he was the fulfillment of. He was not taken aback by the short-lived spectacle of all those shouting the Hallel Psalms and putting garments down and palm branches down as he entered the city. He didn't care about any of that. David Garland says Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was not that of a gawking tourist marveling at the magnificent temple, nor of a pious worshiper offering prayer or sacrifice. He comes as the Lord and the King inspecting his domain, and on the next day he will render judgment. He will, he will cast them out of his temple. And some people get to Mark, the end of Mark chapter 11. Why did Jesus get so angry? This is why he was angry, because the glory of God is worth it. Let me ask you a question. How often does the praise of man and the pride in our hearts that thinks we can do things on our own, the flattery of those around us control our hearts, prohibit us from doing what God has called us to do? Jesus wasn't phased at all, and he never lost focus of the objective. We see in the latter part of Mark chapter 11, the response I mentioned, the next day he would return to cleanse the temple and he would draw one step closer to the cross. And what's even more interesting is he would draw one step closer to the cross on behalf of most of the people that were desecrating his temple because he's gracious. 
And by the way, he did the same for you because on that cross he knew exactly everything you and I would say, think, or do for all of eternity. But sometimes we miss it. We miss it. It's whisked away because life around us is overwhelming, no doubt. The temple could not bring salvation. Only Jesus can because he's the perfect, sinless son of God, the pure and true temple. Did you hear that? Jesus is the pure and true temple. And so when he ascended, he gave those that trust in him the spirit of God. And that's why our bodies are now called the temple of Christ. And one day he will return to bring his people back to him. Listen to John chapter 2. It says this. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus said, destroy this temple. And in three days later, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the pure and true temple. And what does after three days rebuilding it mean? This is the gospel. He'll be crucified, and then three days later he will raise from the dead, defeating the grave. He is the temple, the true glory of God, and here he is standing in the temple. He has come back to Jerusalem, to his temple, and is quiet. There's nobody there. And he's focused. You remember what I said earlier? If you have a memory like mine, you probably don't, but that's okay, I'll remind you. I said, hold that thought from Ezekiel's vision. This is really, really cool. When he saw the glory of the Lord depart the temple in his vision, right? In 586, Jerusalem falls. And the Lord gives him this prophetic vision, and he sees the glory of God leave the temple, and it kind of hovers around, and then it lands on the Mount of Olives. The glory of God has come back to the temple. The glory of God has come back to the temple. And all of this parading, and all of this exterior work, and all of these words that are often empty don't matter. Because what Jesus will do on our behalf and accomplish through the cross is all that matters. Edwards comments, Jesus is indeed the Messiah, but he is veiled and unrecognized even when he stands at the center of Israel's fate, the temple. He stands alone. And he's missed. Because they're focused on everything else. There are no crowds, no rejoicing, there was no, more, no one pining to be close to him. I mean, think about it. If you knew Jesus was going to walk into this place, you think you'd be in a hurry to leave this place and go eat lunch? I wouldn't. I'd be like, just like the dudes on the road as he was just like unveiling the scriptures to them. I've always imagined, what, what was he saying to them? Nobody's there. Look at verse 11. He says he goes back to Bethany. He goes all the way to the temple Nothing happens, a bit anticlimactic. Why is it anticlimactic? I believe this is because Mark clearly wants to show that his arrival into Jerusalem, the city of David, was not his ultimate objective. The objective was to come, and we're beginning to see it move. We worked through some significances of Bethany, and I'm going I'm to close here. I don't even know what time it is, I'm sorry. Um, but we worked through some significances of Bethany and the Mount of Olives. And I want to mention one more. In, in the Old Testament, the Mount of Olives is also very significant for the future revelation of God's glory. If you look in Zechariah 14, 1-9, it, it tells us that, the, that when the Lord returns to claim his own, 
that is the saints, that is the believers, when the Lord returns to claim his own, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and he will be king over all the earth, and he will be the one, and his name one. The Lord is coming again, church, and he's coming to fully redeem us. And until he comes again, we have a job to do. And we can't lose focus. I, I'm, church, I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle what may be going on in your life because Lord knows my family and I get it. But we can't lose focus of the mission of Christ. And furthermore, we can't lose focus of our own hearts before Christ. Don't, don't pursue the mission and not focus on your own heart before the Lord of God. Don't do it. Don't miss the weighty insignificance of it. Many of us here are in a covenant relationship with Christ. And, and here's what I want. I, I want two full things to happen. This is what I prayed all week. Th those of you that don't have a relationship with Christ, I'm praying and I've been praying for you all week that you would trust Christ today. I want you to know Christ. I want you to know. I want you to be overwhelmed by who Christ is and what he's doing. But, but for those that are here today that are believers, I pray that today when we walk away from our study, that you and I are more in, in awe and amazement at the person and work of Christ. That, that's my only hope, to be quite honest with you. I, I want you to know him more. I want you to love him more. I want your lives to bring him more glory. And I want us to have a greater anticipation of his return. I want us to live in light of that anticipation. And furthermore, I want us to be like the disciples who were waiting in the upper room to get after it. Because now we've got some, some folks here this summer to help us really focus. We've got some new residents coming. But the rest of us, we're here all the time. And it's easy to just do life. My prayer is that we're so amazed by who Christ is and what he has done that our lives are pushed forward by that. Let's pray.